0: Clifford Hayes, welcome to Young, Dumb and Politically Disengaged. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. You were elected to the Bayside City Council back in 2005. Then in 2007, you ran in the Victorian state election as an independent for the seat of Brighton. You went on to become the mayor of Bayside and in 2018, you represented Sustainable Australia Party, this time claiming an upper house seat in the southern metropolitan region. And from what I can see, you're very focused on restoring planning powers back to local communities and fighting for better development and infrastructure outcomes, um, as well as sort of wider climate issues and concerns around population growth and immigration among some other points of focus as well. Um, if you would tell us a little bit more about you and, and who you are,
1: I was in the film and TV industry before this, so uh, I worked as an editor and a producer, and um, I I got interested in politics. It was over a development issue where uh, just close to here in Brighton, my mum had a house uh, around the back of Bay Street, and uh, she had this. You know, uh, uh, croquet lawn, a uh, sort of a, a sports area at the, the back of her place. That got sold. They sold the croquet club and we heard a developer had bought it and they were going to put townhouses on it. No one was too um, upset about it. It was pretty, oh yeah, no worries. Uh, then suddenly we heard that the whole project had changed hands and someone was going to build a five-story building with 100 apartments there and... Uh, the whole street arced up and went, oh no, we've got to fight this and a protest and all this sort of stuff because it was mainly single houses, had been for a long time, single story houses. So people were pretty fired up about it and they said, you know, they can't do that. You know, they can't build that high in Brighton. So we went to the council and they said, oh no, 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 it's uh, it's all going to happen. This is Melbourne 2030. It's the new state government plan. And, we came, uh, and then we found out That the council had uh, this new structure plan for north brighton and uh, there were five or six sites where this was going to happen around around the streets here and there was a lot of upset about it at the time and we said uh, the council elections were coming up and we had a group of about 50 people that were into letterboxing and organizing and writing letters to the mayor and the councillors and so the council's not going to do anything about this They're, they're for it and uh we thought uh, we should, you know, you know, give the local councillor a scare and run someone against them for council. And no one wanted to take the job, so I took it on. And uh, surprises, surprises. You know, there was a lot of people that supported me over the issue. And then the story went on that once I got onto council, I was said said, am you know, we'll institute. We'll you know, we found out what to do under the planning scheme. We need to get height controls in and." Uh, have them put into the planning scheme. And uh, as soon as I got in there, uh, the Chief of Planning and the Chief Executive said, well, you know, you can't do that. You can, We can pass height controls, but the State Government will, will never let us have them. So that was the beginning of the real battle that we realised that we were up against the State Government. And and all the councillors really came round and supported my point of view. Everyone, they saw that it was a big matter of concern in Brighton. The same thing was earmarked for Hampton and Sandringham. And Bayside Council pretty well was all about introducing heights at two and three storeys and four storeys in some areas, and the government was going, well, we won't give you those height controls, we we, want a pretty well left open but we might give you six or eight storey height controls, we don't want that. So I realised that the real battle was with the the state government, so um, that's where we sort of campaigned about that. That's why I ran for the siege of Brighton to try and highlight that as an issue. And, and we did, in the end, we did get some forms of height control through the Labor government at that time. And uh, the, the, the battle still goes on. There's still really no real height controls in these, in the shopping centres, but in the surrounding areas. I think it's a mandatory uh, two storeys now, most of the areas, three storeys in, in the so-called activity centres. sort of the result of what we've been doing for a while. Then I got into sustainable Australia because in talking to state government planning officials, they said, "Well, well, Councillor, if you're against high-rise, you must be in favour of suburban sprawl." And I said, "No, not at all. Not in favour of either." And they said, "Well, where are we going to put the population?" And I said, "Well, what population? Where you normally put? No, I don't. We've got a lot of population to deal with." So I started looking at the figures and saw how uh, population growth had really ramped up since the early 2000s in, in Australia and in Melbourne and Melbourne was growing at a huge rate and thought well this is the real issue behind the push for more and more heights and more and more suburban sprawl and all that sort of stuff so uh, I, um, I I, don't know how I found Sustainable Australia but I got in contact with them and uh, we talked and then Decided I would um, I'd, I'd run for Sustainable Australia and they, they were happy about that. And I ran in a in a Senate election I think that was 2010 maybe 2010 2011 and yes I ran a, i ran a couple of elections for Sustainable Australia and finally got finally got a go at the uh, last state election. Planning is still my number one issue, and it's more—it's about local democracy because what we found was not only did most uh, most things that council rejected would be approved at VCAT uh, against the wishes of the local community and the council in a lot of cases, um, and then you could not get any planning scheme that the council had legitimately. Uh, argued for and, and set out and done all the work through the state government if they didn't like it. So the issue was planning Planning should be local, local wishes should be respected. And, and that's, that's something that I took to the election and as part of a Sustainable Australians party platform too.
0: working on several projects at the moment I believe you're currently sitting on the species extinction inquiry you've just passed a motion to obtain a heritage and planning inquiry and you've raised several other issues in parliament in recent times as well your concerns around fast tracking of planning applications urban sprawl creeping into green wedges protection of heritage homes and overdevelopment. and I saw on social media I think just yesterday, I think it was, you were down in Arthur's Seat voicing your concerns about a proposed quarry in the region there as well. Um, tell us more about, yeah, tell us more about it. Tell us tell us more about what you've been up to.
1: I'll start with Arthur's Seat. We're down there to have a look at uh, a quarry site. We've been told that There was a plan to build this quarry at Arthur's Seat and I was sort of picturing sort of some rocky land, a bit scrubby where you can imagine bulldozers going to work and digging out a quarry. We went for a walk through it and it's this beautiful, undulating, quite steep sort of side of, at the side of the mountain at Arthur's Seat. But the bush is absolutely stunning and there's all these native birds and habitat there. And
0: And the kangaroos at Arthur's Sea. Kangaroos. I love kangaroos.
1: And it it was a beautiful piece of land. It was just, there's a hundred acres there that's up for the quarry. But to do that, they'd have to destroy all this bushland and and the habitat, the birds and everything else that goes along with it. And it's just so beautiful. I've never been in such beautiful, thick, Um, with native bush before around this area and it's quite a it's it's got national park on either side of it and it's so it's quite a a beautiful piece of land Uh, to see a quarry go there would be an absolute travesty i thought and uh, i've been sitting on the, the species extinction habitat decline inquiry and we're hearing how our bushland, our forests are just being they're either disappearing or they're just being incredibly changed by man and what man's been doing in these places especially with extractive industries and things like that so i uh, i was pretty passionate about this quarry and I, i was thinking well you know we've really got to reverse this we've got to stop destroying uh habitat because well this is something to do with population growth too because as we've got gone up in success like the Population growth worldwide is exponentially rising and in Australia too, but uh, at the same time other species are exponentially declining Um, So this was something that was quite quite striking and and I think that the way we're managing the way we're managing our environment and uh, how we're managing Uh, agricultural use and even urban sprawl extending out and going along the coastline now threatening koala habitat is it's an urgent matter for uh, for our politicians really but uh, so much there's quite a few good laws written about about the environment but when it comes to putting them into practice making the right decisions we seem to make decisions along economic lines all the time rather than looking at the long-term environmental effects of what we're planning to do. So it's a very big issue for me and for our party. We are an environmental party. Our ecology, our environment, must be something that we've got to really consider and work on now, and that should be at the forefront of what we're doing and where we head our industries. There's a huge amount of work to be done in environmental restoration, reforestation, uh, re- trees, things like that, and we could put a lot of people to work in that area if we turned our, our hearts and our minds to it.
0: Definitely, and then that sort of ties in this month as well with the the G7 summit, a lot of it being focused on climate. Um, Absolutely. And we had um, Scott Morrison backing his government's current climate settings um, when he met with the G7. Um, You know, England and United States, UK, Canada, France, they had um, more ambitious emissions reduction targets. Um, And, yeah, so I think Australia was really under pressure
1: We're really laggards in that area, and and it's noticeably so. And I, I think it brings up a lot of fear about losing jobs and things like that. But I see enormous opportunities for jobs in the new industries of the future, you know, using renewable resources. I think Australia could become a leading country in hydrogen production and establish new industries out of having cheap hydrogen. And we've still got all those fossil fuels, but we could start Scaling back big time on them and moving into the new energy sources and um, You know having a bit of both but seeing the uh, carbon intensive ones go right down and the use of carbon producing uh, energy uh, But we've got a lot of work to do in those But we shouldn't be afraid of doing the work because all that work will produce jobs and will produce uh, a new economy for Australia to get into So I don't really see it as a huge opportunity and not so much of a threat that Many others
0: see it as. Definitely. And I think, yeah, with I think Scott Morrison edging towards, you know, I think he kept when he was talking about the um, emissions target saying um, he would – um, I think it was as soon as possible and preferably by 2050 um, to reach net zero. So it's all this very sort of ambiguous language that he's been using. But he still has been, they've been sort of edging towards that way in recent times. But mm. now I think, um, and what want to get your opinion with, with Barnaby Joyce returning as national leader, deputy prime minister after the leadership spill that sort of just came out of nowhere this week. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, backlash and questions around what that's going to mean for the coalition and their policies. Um, There's already been debates this week with Nationals MPs on childcare, uh, whether to build new coal-fired power stations. Um, They're looking at possibly unpicking the Murray-Darling Basin plan as well. Um, So there's all these issues now that I think Scott Morrison's going to have to contend with and figure out where he stands in all of this um as as the leadership changes and i think um yeah it it'll be interesting to see how he deals with those challenges Uh, moving forward for climate, but then also for other policy issues as well that the Nationals now I think are going to have a different sort of take on women's issues. There was um, some backlash on um, Barnaby Joyce replacing Michael McCormack on the Cabinet Task Force set up to improve outcomes for women. Uh, And obviously with the history of, of what's gone on with Barnaby you know, a few years ago, that was, um, that yeah, the opposition and the Greens were sort of, um ha- you know, weren't weren't too happy with that and were questioning that. So it'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the the cabinet reshuffle and the coalition agreement, what's negotiated there. Um, but but yeah, we, with the hard stance on coal in a lot of the supporters of of Barnaby Joyce, who maybe you know, rewarded by being promoted into ministry positions, I think um, it creates some um, a bit of a dilemma for Scott Morrison.
1: Well, also a bit of a dilemma for the National Party about really whether they're a, a farmer's party, because most farmers are pretty progressive on climate change now. They realise it's their business and uh, uh, if they don't have, um, you know, if they don't have ecological health, they really don't have a farm. So... Um, there's a lot of movement on some parts of the National Party, particularly in Queensland and Victoria and places like that, to to start making a move on um, climate issues, uh, whereas um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the National Party is controlled by the, or seems to be looking after the interests of the mining, uh, mining companies and uh, people that, you know, people that work in the mining and uh, industry too, who, who have also got these fears about losing jobs. So there's internal pressure in the Liberal Party and internal pressure in the National Party too on this very issue. But really they're fighting against the tide in the long run. I think, you know, the short-term, there'll be short-term problems for sure politically, but in the long-term it, it really, everything, everywhere is going towards addressing climate issues rapidly and urgently and really australia can't hold back for too much longer i don't think it's it's something that's got to happen i mean you can't get insurance to, uh, you know climate negative program uh, projects now and banks increasingly won't lend to what they see uh projects that are in danger of becoming stranded assets so those sort of forces, you can't nullify them politically, if you know what I mean. They're, they're major economic forces, really. It's a problem particularly for, you know, the city-based, city-based Liberal uh, members uh, are very aware of their constituency being extremely concerned. It's a, it's a major concern in, in the polls that have been taken lately that something like 70 or 80% of Australians want action on this area, you know, and even increasingly even within uh, coalition voters...
0: Um, we had obviously our, our lockdown here late last month. Was it our? I think it was our fourth lockdown. And then um, the good thing to come out of that though was vaccinations surged all of a sudden. We were at seventy three thousand daily doses nationally on average before that, and then we got up to one hundred twenty two thousand on the eleventh of June. And then about a week later, things were sort of thrown into turmoil again when. The government announced that the AstraZeneca vaccine would be changed again. The rules recommended for people 60 and over, not 50 and over from the ATAGI recommendation to the government. It sort of it, it put a pause on things a little bit. It, it sort of reversed that, you know, projection of people getting lots of people going to get vaccinated uh, and then averages dropped back down to sort of the around the 100,000 a day. We've done, I think, 7 million doses or, or thereabouts. Uh, around the country already, and the projections sort of say that we should have everybody fully vaccinated by mid-April 2022, and now we've got, you know, Delta variants, um, which is rapidly now moving around the world, but we had, you know, a few people in Melbourne when we had our outbreak recently, now Sydney with the Bondi cluster. They've gone into a weak lockdown today, although they're not calling it a lockdown, but it, it, it is really a lockdown there. Um, it's a lockdown, yeah. And there's 65 people there now in that cluster. The the federal government confirmed that they would support um, purpose-built quarantine facilities, so the 1,000-bed facility in Victoria, and then other facilities interstate as well. So that's a positive, I think.
1: The long-term answer to the COVID is, <laughs> you know, vaccination gives us our best protection. So the sooner we get vaccinated, probably the better um, I think it's a bit of a shame the only problem for Australia is I think we backed the wrong horse with the AstraZeneca but there was no knowing that until till those um, studies came out with what had been happening with AstraZeneca and you know Pfizer and moderna seemed like the, uh, the better the better ones to go for I, I think the program it will take time to vaccinate everybody. I think Australia has handled the pandemic extraordinarily well. Uh, I think we're at an advantage because, like New Zealand, we, we can control our borders. So uh, that's that's certainly helped. Also, I was listening to someone talking on the radio about how it's gone, you know, like America's gone really fast and, England's gone really fast, but they had a much more desperate situation going on there. And you were pretty relaxed about it for a while and I was pretty relaxed. I was thinking, oh, well, I'll get it done at some stage, you know. Uh, it was only when it broke out again in Melbourne, I was thinking, well, better get it done, actually. Um, but the countries that have had it bad have moved fastest on the vaccines. The countries that have managed it better have been a bit slower in, in getting vaccinated. And obviously, the risk profile's got something to do with that. Um But, yes, best that um, as many people get vaccinated as possible. America slowed down a bit. They were going very fast, but now they're at 65% and it's lingering around at that rate at the moment. You, You
0: tweeted few weeks ago, you said that the problem is the quarantine strategies haven't improved. They are still as reckless and idiotic as they were from day dot. We send away animals from overseas to remote quarantine facilities, but humans go into hotels in extremely high-density areas.
1: In the old days, they had a quarantine station down at Porte. I don't know if you remember that that's when where ships would unload the sick people there until they got well. We should be doing the same. We shouldn't have the quarantine at hotels in the city. We've got to have a very good quarantine system. It's not, it's not really good enough. We can't really let cases slip through the way they have been and cause the mayhem that they do cause, because I really think the only way to treat it is with short, sharp lockdowns. At the moment, you know, this whole idea that we can live with a certain amount of uh, COVID circulating at the moment doesn't seem realistic. But I do think, I do think, for now, um, having a really good quarantine system, having strict border controls, you know, not being too ambitious. I think we've got to say to people, if you want to go overseas, yeah, fine, if you have to go, but when you can get back in, it's up in the air really, we can't really guarantee that you can come back in two weeks' time or something if you go to a country with very high COVID, um, COVID cases. So there's a lot of complicating factors in it, but I... Um, I think Australia is doing well but I think the call to open the borders and not just let everything flood in and everything go back to how it was at the moment is very is premature and the community health has to come first in, in all our decision making and I say that's about planning and it's about the ecology you know we've got to look at the health of the health of the ecology which is our health too and put our, our the health of our communities forefront at the uh, decision making process which I think we've done really well in Australia.
0: You shared an article on... Well, on Twitter and Facebook, and it, um, by Paul Williams, "Just how big do we want Australia to be?" was the title, and you said you can't have a big Australia without sacrifice, enormous sacrifice. With over twenty thousand migrants coming to Australia every year, a lot has to change. We're forced to choose but between two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand. Sorry. 000, yeah. um, we're forced to choose between urban sprawl with longer and more congested commutes to work and the devastation of our precious environments and ecosystems or densification, which destroys our neighbourhood character and amenity. We watch as the enormous population growth supersedes the capabilities of our health infrastructure, and many are left languishing with life-threatening illnesses and injury as ambulances take many hours to arrive. Like myself, many Australians think Big Australia isn't worth the sacrifices. It's time our major party politicians get the message.
1: Yeah, all those things in the article are are things that, our party is concerned about the declining, uh, declining residential amenity in the cities, congestion, uh, environmental damage, competition over the use of facilities. A lot of people say you need you need to be growing the population for GDP growth. That's not true. Most countries don't grow their population for GDP growth. We're one of the few that purposely do that. Really, you're growing. You may well grow the GDP measures activity, which is not a good measure of well-being at all, but um, getting less and less GDP per head. So really our our living standards in a way, maybe not cash-wise, but in many ways our living standards are are slowly being whittled down as we're trying to cram more and more people in. So I'd be saying let's let's slow down on the growth and see how we can best manage what we're doing now because Melbourne was growing at something like 350 a day or something. There's no cities in the Western world that grow like that. It does have big implications for the environment and for our cities and for the economy of the future, because we can't all work in the construction industry. We've got to have other industries. You know, the Premier says that uh, construction is the backbone of the Victorian economy. Well, I think that's having too many eggs in the wrong basket and a basket that's really we can't push anymore because construction is a, uh, a carbon-emitting industry too. So we've got to really think about how far we push that and we should be getting into newer, greener technology using, using the new fuels of the future and, and developing some smart industries like an electric car industry things like this that we could do here with, you know, robot housing uh, factories and things that they're doing in in Germany they don't rely on um, you know population growth there to um, to boost their economy they, um, they they have a really good industry policy and that's that's where we really need to go
0: so what's your um, view then on the cause I, again it sort of ties into the to the Billiwilla family and they've obviously they've come into the news again this month with everything that happened and now they've been granted temporary Bridging visas, I think, um, which was a little bit of a, um, a, a sort of like a, a backstep from the Federal Immigration Minister, Ali Court, because originally he was saying that if, it, 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 you know, he shouldn't weaken Australia's border protection laws and if he, you know, if he were to grant the family residency, then it would restart the boats
1: it's an unwise situation to say none of those people will ever get into Australia or something like that and paint themselves into a corner in a way because there's always been the ability for the minister to make exemptions in uh, compassion on compassionate grounds and yet they've put themselves in a position where it seems weak if they do that. And yet it's so obvious that compassion should be applied in this circumstance. You know, I do think we've got to have... Uh, We've got to have regulation of the the borders and and things like that, and uh, people's claims for uh, asylum have to be properly tested. But this uh, this policy of lock them up and throw away the key just leads to it leads to inevitable problems like this, and and it is it's not compassionate. It's a terrible thing to do to people to torture one group of people and make them an example to a whole lot of other people that are meant to be overseas and likely to. Suddenly, launch a whole lot of boats if we allow one person to to get through the get through that incredibly tight net. Um, I think there are more sensible ways of managing the policy. That's that's for sure.
0: So, do you think the whole policy needs a revamp? and needs to be looked at Absolutely. and changed.
1: Yes, yes, it does. And if we had a if we had a, a workable number that uh, that we could work to uh, for a migration policy, there's no reason why uh, we couldn't be within that number we couldn't have a much more generous position towards uh, to, towards genuine refugees.
0: And it's costing m- more money too. I can't remember the figure, but it was a lot of money to, to keep these people in detention, more money than it would yes. cost for them to be contributing to society and working and, you know, raising a yes, family. It, yes.
1: it doesn't make sense, does it, to be running these maximum security prisons for, for, to try and solve this situation. And it's such a small problem. I, I think the official... Um, the official rate of refugees coming is less than like 16 to 20 thousand a year. Yet we're talking about the official migration, the net migration, as being well over 200 thousand. And when you add in international students that settle here and the uh, the skilled mi- uh, migrant program, it sometimes peaks up around 400 thousand. So um, the small amount of refugees that everyone gets so excited about is not really is not really our, our major problem if you're talking about uh, migration uh, being addressed or being too much or too little. But really, we should, as a background to looking at migration, we need a real population policy for Australia. What do we really want to achieve? What is the carrying capacity of the land and, and, how, and what sort of cities do we really want to live in? And do we want to see development all the way up and down the coast and everywhere looking like surface paradise? which seems, because the only plan the governments have is more and more and more and more is the, is the best thing for us.
0: Clifford Hayes, thank you so much for being on the show, for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciated hearing your thoughts and insights.
1: Thanks, Leslie, and I will look up young, dumb and politically disengaged and have a listen.
0: Well, yeah, you're going to have to. Well, at the very least, you're going to have to listen to your episode. So it'll be up on the 30th of June. So you can listen to it when it's up and hopefully the other ones as well. <laughs> While you're
1: there. Terrific. All right. Thanks a lot, Leslie. Thanks for the questions. So very uh, well, they fit into areas that I was really interested in talking about. So that's great. <laughs>